0: Usually, when an axe murderer is brought to justice, those in the law enforcement community would celebrate, especially when good police work played an important part in finding the perpetrator. But there was to be no celebration when charges were brought against James William Cushing in the axe slaying of Seattle's Queen Anne Hill resident, Geneva McDonald.
1: As a parent, can you imagine finally getting justice for your murdered child 49 years after it happened? only to have the killer die just days before his arrest? Well, that just happened, and it happened right here in Western Massachusetts. Today, I will be telling the sad story of the murder of Danny Coteau.
0: From time to time, during the How Did We Miss That podcast, we may talk about details of crimes that some may find triggering or disturbing. Listener discretion is highly advised. Miss that Hello. Welcome to How Did We Miss That? I'm Christine.
1: And I'm John. How you doing? Good. I thought you were Mrs. Doubtfire over there with that. Hello. Hello. I realized I said in my intro that it happened right here in Western Mass, like we're in Western Mass. We're not in Western Mass. Far from
0: it. I was thinking that too. I was like, Eh. we're not in, but okay. I
1: screwed up my words. Everything is so close here though that it seems like it's right here. Hey. Yeah. Whatevs. Whatevs.
0: All right. Well, you ready?
1: I'm so ready.
0: Okay. Well, so I started the story at a completely different angle than how I ended up. Oh, good. So it's going to be very interesting.
1: Can I ask a question right off the top here? Absolutely. You've got to know this being a true crime junkie. Why do we specify axe murder, but no other form of murder? Like it's not a gun murder or a rock murder or a blunt head trauma murder, but we we call out axe murder. I don't get it.
0: Because I think it's so strange. You know what I'm saying? Okay.
1: Okay. That's not what I was saying. I think that's why.
0: I think it's just, it's weird. Normally it's a knife or it's a gun. Right? Yeah. And when eh, we say I, I don't know. We say cause of death to gunshot to the head. Yes, stab I gotcha.
1: To the chest. But when referred to we'd specifically call out axe murder. You're an axe murderer. You're not just a murderer. I don't
0: know. It's a special club. It's very like it very is very few people. You know?
1: Yeah. It's a special club, ironically, that doesn't use clubs to murder. Right. Strange. All right. Anyway. Mike I Myers just, married one, I guess. These are the things I think about so, everyone. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's All how right. my brain works.
0: All right, well, we're going to talk about James William Cushing. He was a 36 year old unhoused man. Some of the people who knew him remember him to be very likable. He was a resident of Bellingham Group Home and loved to learn basic skills, but all of that changed when staff changes disrupted his sense of belonging.
1: Unhoused man? Yes. You sound like you work for the government of Los Angeles now. They I'm call sorry? them our unhoused neighbors there.
0: Right. Well, I wouldn't call him a neighbor, but I mean, I guess the people in the neighborhood did.
1: Very nice of you to be inclusive. I'm
0: trying to be. Yes, I'm trying to be inclusive. All right. All right. Jimmy spent most of his life in state institutions and group homes for those with intellectual disabilities, beginning his stay at the age of 14. So I think it's really important to understand kind of what got us to the part of the story that I'm going to tell you about. You know, it's I got to give you the history like I always do.
1: I appreciate that because I don't know anything about these.
0: Right. Well, just so you're aware, in the 1960s, governments began reducing the size of large institutions for the intellectually impaired and attempted to change them into more of like a group home model. Mm -hmm. But money shortages caused staffing issues and many of the institutions went without proper help. Mm. So I think we are well aware that state hospitals... Lost a lot of their funding. Yeah, yeah. Had way too many patients with way too yeah, little staff. Yeah. And I mean, if it were me and I was working in conditions like that, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to leave. Yeah. So I'm sure turnover was not the best.
1: It's It's got to be a rough work environment. Anyway. Yeah, I can't imagine. You
0: know? So, right. Of the 20 young people in the group home in Seattle, only four or five were actually even able to live on their own. The rest were so severe that they really needed help, like around the clock. They were taught skills like personal hygiene, keeping things clean, and having respect for yourself and others. James was doing really well at Bellingham, and some of the neighbors would say that he was friendly with a bit of a weird side, but still very likable. I kind of feel like that describes pretty much all of us. Definitely me. We all have a a bit of a weird side, right?
1: Yeah. Whether we're likable or not is a matter of opinion, but you know. I'd like to think I'm likable, but definitely weird.
0: I like you. Thank you. Okay. James knew that he was never going to make it rich or hit the big time. He really just wanted people to be honest with him. So he really didn't like it when people like tried to beat around the bush and sugarcoat things like Mm. he knew he was not mentally like everyone else. Yes.
1: Yeah. This sounds just like me. (laughs) I appreciate that as well.
0: His mother and stepfather would visit him a lot and it seemed like things were going really well for him there. That is until the home started losing staff. So you have to remember that this was a home to the people that lived there, and the staff and patients were like a family. So when someone leaves or gets replaced, it's like losing a part of your family. Yeah. James, like many people with intellectual disabilities, did not like change. And he began to act out in some pretty disturbing ways. He actually started setting fires. Oh. Mostly to abandon sheds, but. I mean, that's still not something to be taking lightly. He could really hurt himself. He could hurt someone else. All he wanted was something that was stable, a place where he could feel that he belonged to something. Well, the county coordinator didn't care why he was acting out, and he sent him to a different institution. But of course, that did not go well because he didn't like change to begin with. So now we're making it even worse.
1: Yeah. Isn't uh, setting fires one of the signs of a serial killer? Didn't we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Arson. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, so like I said, he didn't like that. He was not happy. He's acting out again because, you know, why, why would you <laughs> make more change for somebody that's having a hard time with change? Yeah. Does it make any sense? Yeah. So he was in and out of group homes for the next like several years of his life. Cushing was finally released because they felt like they had no reason to hold him. And he began to frequent shelters for men in the downtown area. He was well-known in these shelters mainly because of his habits of talking to himself, his fixation with inanimate objects, and because of his poor hygiene. Though he wasn't angry or hostile and didn't become a threat to anybody, the people around him noticed that he just seemed to always be somewhere else, like just completely disassociated from reality. This does not sound like someone that should have been discharged, in my opinion.
1: No, but but they are all the time. Sad.
0: Right, but you know how you can see how someone, like, just isn't with you? Yeah. You know? So, I don't know. If it I, were me, I, I'd be like, no, this kid has to stay here.
1: I see that a lot across the studio here when I'm doing my part of the podcast.
0: It's not funny. <laughs> I don't find that funny. It's hilarious, actually,
1: and I'm sure the listeners are busting with a guffaw.
0: hmm <laughs> All right. Well, they could not force him to live in an institution. All they could do was offer their services. And it was up to him if he wanted to take advantage of them or not. He did actually use one service, though. The Arc of King County, which is a nonprofit center that provides support services to intellectually disabled people and their families. It's actually still operating. And it has been since 1936. Oh, they're working to advocate for the rights of intellectual and developmentally disabled people to live in the communities and improve their quality of life. That's kind of a great qu- cause, I think. It's absolutely.
1: Cool. Yeah, I agree.
0: If you want to learn more about them, check it out. It's uh their website is arcofkingcounty.org. Kind of a cool setup they got. Yeah, absolutely. Is care of people. Is that, it's um, awesome.
1: Arc with a K. It's like Noah's. A R C. Oh okay. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Anyway. Since he didn't really know money very well, he would take his paychecks to ARC and have them work as like sort of a payroll for him. He would go in to get money for food every now and then. The center knew that if they gave him all the money, he was likely to be robbed since he was so vulnerable. They attempted to help him learn to live in his own apartment, but their efforts proved to be completely fruitless. His his condition was deteriorating and his mental illness was escalating life was starting to become very difficult for James Cushing. In March of 1990 is when everything seemed to fall apart for James. Residents would tell the news that he looked very unclean and disheveled when they would see him. Also around this time, the residents of Queen Anne Hill began to report that their homes were being broken into and fruit was eaten from their fruit bowls.
1: That's a new tactic, yeah. Right? Well, yeah, he's hungry.
0: So, yeah, I mean, that's weird, and it is a crime to break into people's houses, but I bet you're wondering why I'm telling you all of this. Yes, I am. Yeah. So now I am going to read to you testimony from the case of the state v. Cushing. Cushing was charged by amended information with one count of aggravated murder in the first degree, one count of attempted murder in the first degree, two counts of first degree burglary, one count of residential burglary and two counts of attempted residential burglary. So I would say things fell apart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Unless they're charging him for murdering that fruit bowl.
0: I mean, maybe he really got after it. Well, here we go. The charges were based on a series of incidents that occurred in Seattle between March 8th and August 31st, 1990 on March 8th, Cushing entered the DeBarros residence through an unlocked door and left an axe that was kept outside the house, indoors. De Barros then put the axe back outside, and it was stolen a few nights later. On March 13th, Geneva MacDonald was found murdered in the bedroom of her house on Queen Anne Hill, a few blocks from the De Barros residence. She had died of multiple chopping blows to her face, an upper torso, inflicted by an axe, which the killer left by the side of her bed. The axe was later identified as the one stolen from the De Barros' home. McDonald was also stabbed repeatedly with a pair of her own scissors, and her bedroom was ransacked. A palm print found on the wall by the door leading into her bedroom, and a thumbprint on the front of her sewing machine cabinet were later identified as Cushing's. On June 17th, Ian Warren, a guest sleeping in a residence in the same neighborhood, was awakened by someone who was holding him down and stabbing at him repeatedly with a knife. Warren was cut twice on his left hand, but was able to ward off the intruder who had apparently entered the house through an unlocked door. People, lock your doors. Lock them. Lock yeah, the doors.
1: you'd be surprised how many people don't. Even in bad neighborhoods. It's crazy. I don't get it.
0: Yeah, just lock the doors. Although Warren's assailant fled, Cushing later told Seattle police that he was trying to kill Warren. Sometime between July 5th and 19th, at approximately 3 a.m., the Lewises, residents of a fourth home in the same neighborhood, awoke to hear an intruder trying to open the front door. Mrs. Lewis went to the door, saw the intruder going down the front steps, and was able to get a good look at his face. She later identified Cushing from a photo montage as the person who had tried to open her door that night. On July 15th, the occupants of a fifth home in the same neighborhood awoke about 4 a.m. to hear someone downstairs. They did not go downstairs to check because they believed it was a roommate. In the morning, they discovered that words, and I'm going to give you a bad language warning here.
1: Our <laughs> things marked with an e. I think we're good.
0: Yeah, I'm just saying. Okay, so they discovered the words fuck you bitch. The killer is back. <laughs> with bitch spelled b i c b i c t oh, yeah. b i c t h. Not b i t c h.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: Bic Bic the Bic the And go to hell you asshole. Oh. had been written on their living room walls. On July 21st, an intruder prowling around another Queen Anne Hill residence at approximately 3 a.m. peered in through the open living room window of a ground floor apartment. One of the occupants chased the intruder, took his picture, and later turned it over to police. Finally, on August 21st, an intruder entered the Durst residence in West Seattle and wrote the words, Fuck you, Seattle. Kiss my ass, bitch. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Did they spell it right this time?
0: The killer is back and goodbye, bitch, all spelled incorrectly. Okay. <laughs> so he wrote this on the walls and the furniture this time. A second axe, which had been stolen from another home, was left in the Durst residence. A palm print and a fingerprint found in the home matched those found in the McDonald home. And on September 13th, they were positively identified as Cushing's. Hmm. The fingerprint identification allowed Seattle police detectives to identify the man in the photograph as James William Cushing. Cushing was living on the streets at the time and had a long history of destructive behavior and numerous contacts with the mental health system in Washington. He was arrested at Steve's Broiler. Sounds like a good place.
1: Sounds very Seattle.
0: Yeah, it was. Well, it was in downtown Seattle at approximately 1145 p.m. on the evening of September 13th, 1990. Cushing agrees that he was asked no questions of an incriminating nature on the way to the police station. After being read his Miranda rights, he provided police with a videotaped confession that confirmed details of all the crimes with which he was charged. Cushing was found competent to stand trial, subject to ongoing competency evaluations. He entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was ultimately convicted on all accounts. Hmm. So basically... The document goes on to explain that the defense believes that his disability made it impossible for him to knowingly make a confession or waive his Miranda rights. But determining whether a confession should be admissible requires the court to examine all of the circumstances surrounding the confession. So they had to like take a look at every single thing that went into that. You know, like was it coerced for example of course, James's mental abilities would play a part in the decision, but it was ultimately found that the confession was acquired appropriately by police. So his appeal was denied. So this is a different kind of story than I normally do. Yeah. At first I was excited to hear about a fruit stealing axe murderer. But <laughs> but as I read on, I found a story about the system failing this young man. Yeah. It was a tragedy for Geneva McDonald and her family, but for James Cushing as well. Yeah. Definitely a story where there is no justice for anyone involved.
1: And I feel like the institutions that let these people go should be held accountable. Yeah. Even today. And they're not. Like, someone pleads insanity or something and, you know, they were let go or dropped off from this hospital. That's negligence. Like, what are we doing here?
0: Right. That's why things like Arc of King County are so important. Because it gives services to these people to help them. Yeah. To be better members of the community.
1: Well, what's crazy about the unhoused population in like LA, for example, right now is that the government will not call it what it is. They won't call it mental illness. They yeah. don't recognize the crimes that are occurring with these people. Mm-hmm. And they say it has to do with, you know, lack of income or lack of housing, affordable housing. Bullshit. It's mental illness. It's Absolutely. drug It's drug use. It's everything else. When like, you
0: are mentally ill, you're unstable. You can't hold employment. Right. You have good days and you have bad days. I mean, for like James Cushing, he people were saying he didn't even seem like he was there. Yeah, incredible. He really needed some help, and unfortunately, it just completely failed him. Well, so
1: I think people should other people should be held accountable.
0: A tragedy for the victim, but also a tragedy for James as well.
1: Absolutely, good one. I like it. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to give a trigger warning for mine. A TW, a CW. Content warning. Mm -hmm. I know we do it at the beginning of every show, but I want to be real clear about mine because I know there may be some listeners that are very triggered by what I'm going to talk about. The general basis of my story is not about this, but it is mentioned quite a bit, and that is uh, sexual abuse of minors in the Catholic Church. Okay. So I'm covering a priest who murdered this boy back in 1972, and they just found out or were able to... Charge him with it like five days ago as we record this. Right. So I'll go on record saying that you and I are both devout Catholics. We recognize this happened and yes, may absolutely. still happen. And it makes us sick. It makes us sad. We do not condone this at all Mm-mm. and uh, needs to change.
0: Absolutely. I also do want to go on record as stating I don't think in any organization, religious or otherwise, you can judge every person by the actions of... Absolutely. Now, I'm not going to say a few, because unfortunately there are quite a lot yeah. <laughs> in this particular case, but not every single person feels that way. So,
1: Correct. All right, let's take a trip back in time to 1972, shall we?
0: Let's do it. Get
1: your bell-bottoms ready. Was Disco around yet, or is that like late 70s? I don't even 70s? Know. I have no idea. I don't either. I'm going to butcher this name several times. I could try to say it like the French... Or I can try to say it in English. I still can't say it correctly either way. So I'm sorry to the dead and his family for not saying his name. But Danny Cruteau, is that what we decided? Yes. Was just 13 years old when his body was found floating in the Chicopee River just outside of Springfield, Massachusetts. We've been there. We've seen the Chicopee. We have? We've driven through. Okay. Yeah. It's uh, probably the third biggest city. Right. No, sorry. Yeah. Third biggest city in Boston. I'm Boston. Look at Massachusetts. Massachusetts, outside of Boston and Worcester. When his body was found, it was clear that Danny had been murdered. He had suffered blunt trauma to the head before being dumped in the river and left for dead. Oh, that rhymes. I didn't even realize that. Investigators determined that Danny's skull had been crushed by a rock. That's just a brutal way to die, in my opinion. And you and I have talked about this before, but I like seriously get queasy when I see head trauma in a sports game or on a TV show.
0: Yeah. Ugh.
1: It's seriously like it's my a worst fear. Way.
0: It's a terrible way to go. But also the fact that it was a, a rock is obviously it's a crime of opportunity. It wasn't premeditated.
1: Oh, look at
0: you. So. Well, it's like seriously I mean, maybe not my, obviously, my worst
1: fear to hit my head really hard or, or die like Negan style with a baseball bat. Um, so, I, you know. I need to give myself a trigger warning for what I just said because, like, it's literally like,
0: ooh, yeah, it's
1: the one thing that really gets me. Mm-hmm. Cruteau was a good kid, he, a devoted altar boy at his hometown church, Saint Mary's in Springfield. He was dedicated to his service to the church and to God, and his pastor took notice of this dedication. Unfortunately, there isn't a ton of information out there about Danny as a person or his life before the murder. I don't know if it's because he was a kid, you know, the whole minor thing at the time or just yeah, how information becomes available. Um, but my my Google foo, my black belt here in Google, really let me down on his backstory. So I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. I don't have much. If you want to Google it on your own after this episode and write to us and tell me I'm wrong, there's all kinds of stuff I missed. I don't know. But I couldn't find much.
0: So that that's part of the, the hard part of our job is that we're choosing to do stories that Maybe people haven't heard of, yes, and they probably haven't heard of it because there's not much out there about them. Yeah. Also, it sounds like yours is relatively <clears throat> recent.
1: Yes, and like very so recent.
0: not much is out yet.
1: Yeah. But. So for now, we'll get into the the priest in this story and the murder itself before we get into the real juicy and current details I teased earlier. Catholic priest Richard R. Levine, no relation to Avril, at least to my knowledge, or Adam. Or Adam was spelled, it's spelled like Avril. So oh, I didn't, all right. I was gonna say Adam, but it's spelled like Avril.
0: They're spelled differently.
1: Yeah. Levine they are? is just, uh, L, I think he's N-E, N-E. But I thought that was Levine Avril, is L A V I G N E. Levigna. Levigna. He was the head pastor at St. Mary's. Born in 1941, Levine had been a priest in the Springfield church since, I don't know, the mid 60s or 60s or so. I couldn't find confirmation on that either. Parishioners recall him having several personal relationships with his altar boys, several of Great. whom would later accuse him of long-term sexual abuse. Fabulous. Unfortunately, this was all too common of priests during this time and into the 90s, as we know, being right. Catholics and what we hear about, especially here in Massachusetts and Boston. Um, and, you know, I, I said this already, but I'll say it again, that as a Catholic and a father of an altar server— these stories really get me feeling some type of way. Like the only word I can choose is rage. Right. If I ever found out anyone did this to my kids in the church setting or otherwise, there it would be ugly. Right. Just we really would be ugly. telling a story about you. Yes.
0: But let me pause for just one second before you continue. I really want to go on record as stating that because of this, and unfortunately, it took this to make all of this happen. The Catholic diocese that I have been involved in as a teacher take this extremely seriously. You there is constant training. There is yeah. constant signing of things. Um, we are told you are never to be with a child without another adult present. So
1: I think that was All actually of that stuff part of the parameters when things went down in Boston right. that they had to do that. But they do it in other diocese dioceses.
0: Diocesan.
1: Dioceses as well. Because I remember that being a California thing as well. Yes?
0: Yes. No, in in any diocese that i've ever been a part of that has been the case right so i mean that's wonderful i'm so glad that they're doing that it sucks that it took this to do it yeah well, but most things are i'm glad that they've realized that what was going on was not okay yeah, and yeah. they didn't hide it this time and they yeah just own it. it own
1: it it's better yeah. to own it Alright, I'm off my soapbox. Okay. I don't think I was saying anything unexpected or out of line. No, i did not. Saying think that so. I, someone a priest is gonna get killed if they touch my kids.
0: Anybody. <laughs> I'm
1: going on record over the air saying that. So convict me if it happens. One of Levine's victims was Cruteau and several of the other altar boys and victims recalled that the priest often used alcohol and chewing gum to loosen the kids kids' inhibitions. This'll be important in a minute. Okay. Now I know alcohol you know decreases your inhibitions but uh how does gum do that?
0: Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard this Maybe about. Have you heard part of that? No, but maybe it's just part of like the grooming process. I mean, yeah, I don't, you wouldn't think that a priest would be like, hey, yeah, chew some gum. Yeah, you're, yeah.
1: There you go. Okay. You're not supposed
0: to be doing that. Yeah, so I got gotcha. you. Kind of like, oh,
1: cool. He's cool. I knew you would have the answer for this. Here well, I am thinking, I like, think <laughs> did they soak the gum in alcohol? So I'm like, what?
0: I mean, that's, that's why the, gum? That's know? the only thing I can think of. So, you know, weird. part of the grooming process is to. Make them Make feel comfortable. Make them feel like you're really cool and they can yeah. trust you. Like,
1: hey, it's cool if you break this rule. Yeah. got gotcha. you.
0: and if you start breaking little rules, then you'll break bigger and bigger rules as it goes. So,
1: Yeah. One of Levine's victims tells a story of a camping trip in 1968 where Cruteau yelled at him and said he would tell others about his molestation. He said the priest turned extremely serious after this and his relationship with Danny changed. Between the late 60s and 1991, about 40 claims of sexual abuse of minors were brought against Levine. Bishop John Marshall finally removed him from the ministry in 1991, and the following year, he pleaded guilty to two counts of child sexual abuse. Only two? But wait, there's more. There's more! He was also the only suspect named in the killing of Cruteau, a case that had gone cold since its occurrence in 1972. A 1994 DNA test failed to pin Levine to the crime scene as it was deemed inconclusive. However, both Levine's and Cruteau's blood type were both tied to the scene. So
0: just the type.
1: Correct. Here's where things get really interesting. I can't figure out why it took so long to convince this guy after you hear what I'm about to say. Okay. Here's red flag number one. When Cruteau's body was found, his blood alcohol level was enough to make him legally drunk. And both his stomach and pockets were full of chewing gum. That just screams Levine and his tactics. I, I don't. I don't know what but else does.
0: Did they know that that was his tactics at the time?
1: No, and I recognize that. But they know that now.
0: Oh, after 1991, so, right. after so these witnesses been, came clear. forward, yeah.
1: And it took from 1991 until five days ago to get a warrant for this guy's arrest. That's Jeez. what I'm saying. That's what I mean by that.
0: Well, that's also circumstantial. Correct. They can't prove that he gave him any of that unfortunately
1: to make things even more obvious Croteau's brother received a phone call two days later from a voice that sounded like the priests apologizing for killing his brother again. All of this came out after 1991. The point I'm trying to drive home here is that it took from 1992 really till 2021 to get a warrant for this guy's arrest. Insane. But like you said, it's all circumstantial. It's witness accounts from people that were abused. So, the, you know, you kind of get the sense that they'll say anything. There's a to, passion there. Exactly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Several occurrences like this happened over the years, and we'd be here all night if I went into all of them. Like I just mentioned, all these witnesses were coming forward and saying things. Right. I know you all just love the sound of my voice, but I'm going to skip ahead.
0: Is okay. that cool? yeah. Are cool.
1: you good with that or are you sure? I'm fine. All yeah. right. Levine died just five days ago, as we record this, on May 21st. The medical report said that he died of complications from COVID-19. I mean, isn't that how everyone has died since about March 2020?
0: Yep. Everybody dies of COVID now.
1: Of course I'm joking, but Levine's death from COVID is no joke. It actually happened by some science-y sounding pneumonia thing um, that I can't pronounce. (laughs) And his timing couldn't have been better for him. Although he never confessed to killing Danny, Levine left behind several clues some that we've mentioned already, and the most glaring of all occurred in the weeks before his death when he told an investigator that he gave Danny a good shove by the river
0: oh dear. and then
1: left before returning to the scene to find him floating in the water.
0: Oh, well, there you go.
1: That comment prompted State Police Trooper Michael McNally to prepare a 15-page statement in order to finally obtain an arrest warrant charging Levine with the murder of Danny. Nice. Like I said, this took like... A long time. Too long. In fact, this story came across my airwaves when I saw a news story stating that significant recent developments in the case have led to a warrant for a suspect. I don't know if the investigators just weren't asking the right questions all this time, but Levine finally came clean, albeit in his own twisted way, right right, right before his death, of course.
0: Well, as a priest, you would definitely want to confess your sins before you go.
1: Well, he never actually Did them outright, though. And I'll I'll get into how Mm -hmm. right now. Here are some of the key revelations from the statement that finally led to obtaining the warrant. Number one is Danny's funeral. Levine conducted Danny's funeral mass. Oh, Lord. What a sicko, right?
0: Wow. I mean, if you're asked to do it, you're not going to be like, oh, I killed him. So it's probably not (laughs) right. No can do.
1: (laughs) Conflict of interest.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yikes.
1: Official records recall him making some interesting statements during the mass and acting strange in general. Official records indicated him as a person of interest because of his inconsistent and unusual behavior and statements made to investigators in the days following the murder, but never enough to convict him, like we've said on cases before. The second revelation was a tip in 1991. A witness came forward when, when Levine was being prosecuted for an abuse case. The witness said that he would sometimes appear on the street when the boys were playing hockey. Danny would, without warning, stop playing, begin crying, and tell them he had to leave. He would then run toward where Levine parked and would leave with him, heading the opposite direction of home. Hmm. Number three here, a tip in 1993. Two years later, another witness came forward and said he saw a man driving what appeared to be a Cadillac, leaving the area where Danny was killed on a weekend night in April 1972. The witness said the man looked like Levine and was wearing a white priest's collar. Now, they weren't sure that he drove a Cadillac, but they were sure that he drove a kind of a big four-door, dark-colored vehicle. Right. It's confirmed this was a Cadillac, but they're pretty certain it was his car, based on the descriptions that they gave. Okay. Number four. The incident I mentioned earlier at the camping trip in 1968 was made part of this official report. Danny's willingness to expose Levine likely made him angry, thus giving him a motive for the murder. Right. Right. Number five. Oh, you hear that thunder? Yeah. Nice. A fourth witness came forward and spoke of Levine's threatening behavior, often telling the boys who wanted to leave their service due to the abuse that they would live to regret it. Uh-oh. The witness also reported hearing Levine discuss the death of Danny with another parishioner, ultimately claiming his innocence but also knowing a bit too much about the situation. Oh, well, yeah. Number six. A fifth witness disclosed details about Levine's violent behavior, stories of smacking the boys when they said something out of line and describing that he had a temper and that you did not want to cross him. Oh, no. And finally, number seven, the seventh kind of key point from this 15-page report. The interviews just weeks before his death. As mentioned before, Levine voluntarily agreed to speak to McNally on five separate occasions in April and May of this year. During the interviews, Levine admittedly admitted—I'm sorry—admitted sorry, admitted to bringing Danny to the river on the night of his death. He said, "In quotes, Danny wandered off, and after waiting there for 20 to 30 minutes, when Danny did not return, Levine said he left him there and went home." McNally wrote, relaying Levine's account. Again, quote: He stated that he did not report this to police, nor did he tell Danny's parents. Levine told this officer that he returned to the river's bank. About an hour later, and saw Danny floating face down in the river. He could not recall why he returned to the river's bank. Hmm. Levine also expressed regret in leaving Danny alone, McNally said. He followed that it was hard to say that if that was the greatest regret of his life. He said that he was alone when he found Danny floating in the river. And he also said that he watched the body from his car and turned around on the road and went home. He stated that he was heavy hearted when he got home. It's kind of odd behavior, right? Like he brings him there, supposedly comes back and finds him dead. Just like, whatever.
0: I just feel like if it was truly an accident, like if it were me and it really was an accident, I would call for help. Exactly. I wouldn't just be like, whoops, I'm going to go, bye. (laughs) Right, right. If he really had a heavy heart, you know, I don't
1: know. Yeah. When asked why he never informed anyone about what he saw that night. Levine's answer was, why tell it? Uh,
0: I don't know. <laughs> exactly. To help a dead person? Like <laughs> he said, He then said
1: that there is truth in a lot of things that is never revealed. He also mm-hmm. said, I just think about his mother. She must have been a mess of tears afterwards. But the father, I didn't give a damn about. He was a jackass and the older brother was too.
0: Oh, that's nice.
1: <laughs> so this gives you kind of an idea about <laughs> this guy's... Probably not all with it. Again, a mental health theme here, a mental illness theme.
0: Jeez. Well, you would have to be completely sick. Right. I'm sorry.
1: Anyway, this information during those interviews gave police the reasons they needed to finally arrest him. On the eve of the day they were to serve the warrant, investigators received word that Levine had passed away in the Greenfield Medical Center out in Western Mass from COVID. Mm -hmm. While the Croteau family will never see him brought to justice... As devout Catholics, they are certain he will receive his judgment in the afterlife. That's yeah. my story.
0: Wow, two miscarriages of justice here.
1: That's a great band name.
0: Miscarriage of justice. Yeah. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, miscarriages of justice, and like like you said, you've got to be sick. Clear mental health
0: issues. Yeah, here. absolutely.
1: And we could go on for hours, or have a whole other show about why this occurred or it still occurs in the Catholic Church, but I don't want to go down that road.
0: It's not this show. This is not this <laughs> show.
1: So, there you have it.
0: All right. Well, if you would like any information about these cases, pictures, things like that, please make sure to follow us on social media at How Did We Miss That? And until next week, keep your head up and look out for each other.